Um, Brother Larry talked about uh, talking of all his wondrous love and care. And he did a very good job of that. And I want to continue that theme. Talking of all his wondrous love and care. And what I'm going to talk about is probably the greatest thing that God has ever done. It's greater than the creation and all the things that he has made. I'm going to talk about our great salvation. I really believe that that's the greatest thing we can talk about when we think of his love and care. In Ephesians 2 verse 7 or something like that, it says that in the ages to come, he would show the exceeding greatness of his mercy and his grace toward us. It's going to take all eternity to talk about our great salvation. And the question that comes to me is, do we really um, see it as great as we should? And that's part of the purpose of this message, is to stir up our minds and hearts to treasure its greatness. I know I need that. <clears throat> I don't know, it's something about uh, the... It's not a physical thing that is before us every day that we see it with our eyes or we hear it or whatever. It's something that needs to come by faith. And so we need to be continually stirred up and reminded. You know, in a nutshell, the salvation is like this. We were bound for a torturous eternity, far worse than we can imagine. Revelations 21.8 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Every one of us were in that situation. That's where we were headed. But instead of that, we were saved to enjoy the most glorious eternity, far better than we can imagine. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. We were talking about salvation not being a new thing anymore. We get used to it. Well, here it says God will make all things new, and it will be continually new. I suppose if we would... uh, someday get a letter in the mail saying that we have been found guilty of sin. Please come for our court hearing. And we would go to the court hearing and the judge would instantly say, you are guilty and you are condemned to be thrown in a lake of fire. A lake of fire. How would we feel? And you know, if this would be real, if we would see it with our eyes and we would know that's going to happen. But just before it happens, somebody would come and say, I'll take your place. That's what salvation is like. And I would like to um, be able to make this so real that we will remember it for days and days, but I doubt if that will (laughs) happen. It's only God can do that for us. It seems like it should be something that we think about all day long. The first thing in the morning when we wake up and the last thing at night before we go to bed. This greatness of our salvation. Is that the way it is? Um, I had to think of what Peter said in his book several times. He wants to stir up our minds by way of remembrance. He knew how it was that we get so used to these things that we need to be stirred up. 
I'd like to read from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His own will. This passage very clearly shows us the importance of being continually reminded of giving earnest heed so they don't slip. What happens when something slips? talks about that in verse 1. When something slips... We don't have it anymore, right? It falls down. It's something that we lose. And we don't want that to happen. We don't want our salvation to slip. Then it talks about the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and that's referring to the law. And that law was a very strict law, and if people didn't obey it, It says they received their just recompense of reward. That was spoken by angels. And then he talks about what was spoken by the Lord. That was in the last days God spoke to us by His Son. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That word neglect stood out to me. What does it mean to neglect something? If we neglect, um, well, basically, if we neglect something, it begins to lose its value. I was thinking of a garden. In the springtime, we go out there and till up the ground and make it nice and loose and kill all the weeds and plant the seeds, and this is all exciting. But after a while, the newness wears off, and we start neglecting it. What happens? Weeds grow up. And then they get bigger, and then it's too hard to weed, and so we just neglect it. Pretty soon it's worthless, isn't it? Totally worthless. Nothing we planted bears fruit because of the weeds. It's because we neglected it. Or even what about uh, neglecting our house? That would happen slower probably, but if we start neglecting our house, we don't clean our house anymore, and we walk around with dirty boots, and it becomes dirty, and pretty soon a window gets cracked, and then the mice start coming in. And If we just neglect it, it goes downhill, becomes worthless. Well, that's what he's saying about our salvation. If we neglect our salvation, if we neglect hearing what God has talked about, that's what will happen. It will become worthless if we become careless with it and don't regard it as important and eventually we may even make light of it that sounds pretty serious 
I read someone's comments about these verses that I thought was very good. I think I'll read it here. The point of this paragraph of God's Word is that there will be no escape for any of us who neglects our great salvation. Verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What's the answer to that question? The answer is there is no way we will escape if we neglect such a great salvation. Now this is a sobering word for the world and for the church because most people do neglect the greatness of salvation. That's a pretty serious statement. Most people neglect the seriousness of their salvation. And I was blessed as I was here today and hearing the singing and the... Yeah, the atmosphere here. I believe that we are not neglecting our salvation. I don't feel like I want to accuse you of neglecting your salvation. But it shows the seriousness here. Let's continue to put a lot of emphasis on our salvation. How many people do you know who give serious, sustained attention to the salvation accomplished by Christ, who love it and think about it and meditate on it, and marvel at it, and feel continual gratitude for it, and commend it to others as valuable, and weave it into all the lesser things of their lives, and set their hopes on it. Do you live this way? Is it not astonishing how neglectful even professing Christians are of their great salvation? Is there a sense of greatness in your mind about your salvation? When something truly great is happening, there is an appropriate response to greatness. Do you respond to the greatness of your salvation, or do you neglect it? Do you treat your salvation the way you treat your will or the title to your car or the deed on your house? You signed it once and put it away in a file drawer somewhere, but it is not really a great thing. It has no daily effect on you. Basically, you neglect it. So this is an astonishing word to the church and the world. To neglect our great salvation is to come into judgment, and there will be no escape. Being a Christian is a very serious business. That really spoke to me, especially the part about loving it, thinking about it, meditating on it, marveling on it. You know, not just once a week when we come to church, but daily. And weaving it into all the lesser things of our lives. How are we doing? We become indifferent so quickly and easily to these great things. But this is no surprise to God. He knew that we were going to be this way. He knows all about us. He knows that we have such a short attention span. So he did something on purpose to help us. He gave us something specifically to remind us of our salvation. What was that that he gave us to remind us of our salvation? Something we're supposed to do over and over again. He gave us the Lord's Supper, the communion. So how do we, how do we, uh, what value do we place on communion? Is it truly what God wants for us? Is it truly the way God feels about His salvation? Or do we tend to ignore it? 
and consider it unimportant to participate. You know, do I really value communion as this reminder that God gave us so we don't forget? Okay, now we're going to talk a little bit actually about our salvation rather than just remembering it. To start off with, I want to look at how serious sin is. Because there again, we tend to kind of pass it over and don't look at it as serious as God does. If we go back to Genesis, to the first sin, Genesis 2.16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Why was man uh, sentenced to die the day he eats of it? Was it because the tree was poison? No, the tree was not poison. But it was because eating of it was a sin. And the wages of sin is death. So we think about this command that God gave. Just don't eat of this fruit of the tree. It doesn't seem like a really big thing, does it? I mean, it's not like killing someone or lying or stealing. Those are bad things. This was just a matter of not eating of the tree. And God didn't even say why. But it made great changes. You know, after they ate of it, then they were driven from the garden and had to work for their food and all kinds of bad things happened. And I wonder if we would see the seriousness of sin if there would be great changes made when we sin. You know, if we commit a sin, does anything change except we feel bad within? Nothing really changes in our lot in life because sin is all around us. But for them, there was a great change made. I wonder how often they thought back, if only we wouldn't have taken of that fruit because life was so bad after that. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So that's where we find ourselves today. A little bit about how God sees sin. Also want to look in Isaiah chapter 1, another description he has. Verses 2 to 8. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backwards. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. 
the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed together, bound up, neither neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. He is describing his feeling toward Israel in this chapter. But I don't think that Israel was any worse than we are. We were. I believe we can put ourselves in this description and that God would say that about all of us. That's how God sees sin. Completely sick from head to toe. Completely sick. There was nothing good in it. We tend to look at ourselves as mostly good with a few mistakes. That's kind of how we think of ourselves, isn't it? Mostly good with a few mistakes that we need to ask God to forgive. Or mostly healthy with a few sores. Or maybe a pretty good apple with a few wormholes. But that's not the way God sees it. He sees it as a completely rotten apple. That's how he sees it with sin in our lives. And there's not much more... um, It's hard to think of something more disgusting than a completely rotten apple. You don't even want to pick it up with your hands to throw it away. A completely rotten apple. That's what sin is like to God. It also talks about your country is desolate. In verse 7, desolate would indicate a wasteland, something completely worthless, such as a desert where there is no life, there is nothing green, only sand and heat, no water. Completely worthless. And if we go back to that first verse that I read about uh, the end result of sin, the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters. And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's where all rotten apples go. Can we really grasp how bad sin is in God's eyes? So is there anything that can be done to help such rotten sinners from their just condemnation? Is there anything that can be done? It would seem impossible. There's no lawyer that would ever consider taking such a case because there's no way that anything can ever be done. Even the devil thought nothing could keep him from his prey. He thought he had won the battle. But there's a verse in Ephesians 2.4. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. So that's a different aspect now. We have love entering the picture. Love and mercy 
So even though God hates sin like a rotten apple, He loves us. And He made a way to keep us from suffering this condemnation. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says, Who His own self bear our sins in His own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. His own perfectly righteous Son took our place. Took our place that we don't need to suffer that condemnation. John 3.16 is a favorite verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That changes the picture, doesn't it? It turns it from night to day. Hebrews 2.6 says, But one in a certain place testifying, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. This is basically a description of our salvation. Starts out by talking about man. God made man at the time of creation, says a little lower than the angels. God made the angels like Larry was talking about. And he made man a little lower and put him on the earth. And it says, Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. That's how God made us originally. We were supposed to um, have dominion over the works of the, of the Lord and subdue it. But we found out that when sin came along, we could no longer have this glory and honor. We could no longer subdue the earth because we lost our place, because sin was in the picture. We can't do it anymore. So we lost that place where God put us. But here comes Christ, and He also was made a little lower than the angels. He became a man like us. But He was not hindered by sin. He could have assumed that place of glory and honor because he was not hindered by sin. But he gave that up and suffered death like we do. Then it says he was made perfect through suffering. 
For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. How was Christ made perfect through suffering? Was he imperfect to start with? And then because he suffered, he became perfect. You know, if we carry that further, if he was imperfect, that means he was a sinner and then became righteous by suffering. No, that's not what he's talking about. It wasn't that he was unable to save and then because he suffered, now he's able to save. It means that he was tested and passed the test. A test that we could not pass, but he was tested and passed the test. He chose the will of the Father over his own flesh. You know, when he was in heaven, there was never a disagreement between God and Jesus. So their will was in perfect agreement. So how could he be tested in obedience like we are when we are tempted by the flesh? We want what the flesh wants. The flesh has a desire, but God's desire is different than our flesh. Well, Jesus experienced the same thing. His flesh did not want to die. It was very difficult for him to choose the will of the Father, but he passed the test. Verse 14 of that same chapter says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. As I read this, I got the picture of what an eagle does when it teaches its young ones to fly. They push them out of the nest because they don't want to get out by themselves. They've never flown before, but they push them out of the nest and they have to start flapping and learn to fly. But the parent eagle is watching and before it gets too far down, it dives down and comes underneath and saves that baby eagle from destruction. That's like Christ did. He left heaven and swooped down and saved us from destruction. He became one of us to save us. Now I'd like to look at the importance of the resurrection in our salvation. You know, it wasn't just that Christ died for our sins. That wasn't enough. Can we say it that way? It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. If it wasn't for the resurrection our salvation would not be accomplished. Salvation is not complete without it. It appears to me like Christ's death took care of all the sins that had been committed. If I'm saying it right. And if not, you can correct me. All the sins in the past, Christ's death took care of. But what about the sins that we still besieged with? We still make mistakes. We still have sins that need to be forgiven. What about those? Christ's death is over with. There's no more sacrifice for sins. There's nothing else that can happen. But His resurrection takes care of the sins, the continual problem with sin, if we can say it that way. It says in Romans 4.25, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So the resurrection takes care of all sins for all time. 
And there's several ways that it does this. <clears throat> and maybe there's more than that. <laughs> this is all I came up with. But first one is in Hebrews 7.25. says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So because of the resurrection he went back to God, he is interceding for us. And no one is better qualified to intercede for us than God, than Jesus. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He knows the difficulties we have. He knows the struggles. And he is also able to be in the presence of God for us. What would we do without an intercessor? Another way that the resurrection takes care of our sin problem, in Romans 8, 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. In Romans 6, 4, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So through the resurrection we now have power, power to overcome sin. So that's some of what the resurrection does for us. <clears throat> gives us power to live over sin and gives us an intercessor to, to speak to God for, in our behalf. <clears throat> And then in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, it seems like this kind of sums it all up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And what's that going to be like in the last time? Let's read Revelation 21.4 again. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I'd like to read yet one more time part of these comments that I read. How many people do you know who give serious, sustained attention to the salvation accomplished by Christ, who love it, and think about it, and meditate on it, and marvel at it, and feel continual gratitude for it, and commend it to others as valuable, and weave it into all the lesser things of their lives, and set their hopes on it. Do you live this way? May the Lord bless.